Hey everybody, it's T with Abduction Enigma Podcast. So this week I'm going to present to you a lecture from Robbie Graham held in 2014 from Exopolitics Denmark. He goes over UFOs, hyperreality, and the disclosure myth. Now I think it's important to put this up in podcast form because again, it's good for preserving some harder things to find. I couldn't find many lectures by Robbie Graham, so this is going to be important. I think you guys will love it. Now, I never got to interview Robbie Graham like I wanted to, so this is a little bit of tribute to him. Alright, let's get it. And I also want to throw in, before we get started, a listener shout-out. So thank you, Cliff Harris, for reaching out to me and all of your kind words. I'm glad you enjoy the podcast. It is so important that you guys reach out to me, and I always appreciate it when you do, and I'll always give shout-outs like this. Because sometimes dealing with some of the drama that goes into the UFO abduction scenario and just UFOs in general, it gets hard, and honestly, it makes you want to stop sometimes. And you're going to see that with the next episode that we go over. Now, I'm not going to give it away for you yet, but it's filled with a lot of drama, and you might like it, you might not. But again, I want to say thank you, Cliff Harris. You are awesome, and I appreciate you listening. I also forgot to throw in, I'll throw the link up to the video in my Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch the full lecture, head over there. Øh, vores næste taler hedder Robbie Graham. Øh, han er født i 1981, og han er forfatter. Han øh, er, kommer snart ud med sin bog, der hedder Silver Screen Sources. Han har en øh, kandidatgrad i filmvidenskab med udmærkelser fra The University of Bristol. Øh, han har en videre en first class honors degree i film, tv og radiostudier fra Stratfordshire University. Han skriver om de kulturelle og politiske processer, som påvirker og skaber indholdet i Hollywoods øh, UFO- og alienfilm. Han har været interviewet på BBC, øh, Coast to Coast AM, Kanal Plus, Vanity Fair om UFO'er og Hollywoods politik i denne her forbindelse. Han har skrevet til flere blade og viser herunder The Guardian, New Statesman, Film Facts og et peer-reviewed tidsskrift, der hedder The North American Studies. Og lige for at nævne hans bog igen, som hvis uh, udkommer i januar, it comes out your book in January next year, or? Early months of next year, yeah. Early months of, uh, uh, of 2015. Uh, and the book is Silver Screen Sources, Sorting Fact from Fantasy in Hollywood's UFOs Movies. Was that correct? Correct. Great. <laughs> Give the word to you, Robbie. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Freddie, and thanks to Pierre and thanks to Exopolitics Denmark for inviting me to speak here this weekend. It's my first time in Denmark and in Copenhagen, so it's quite exciting for me. Um, 
Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about three things. First of all, my forthcoming book, Silver Screen Sources. Secondly, and the main focus of today's talk, is this idea of UFOs in the age of the hyperreal. And this is a concept that I'll be explaining as I go on. It's looking at how it is that UFOs have come to occupy a realm between fantasy and reality in our culture, in our society. Finally, I'll be sharing with you a very personal perspective on the UFO phenomenon and on the field that seeks to understand it. So, Hollywood, uh, so um, aliens and, uh, and, uh, and Hollywood, they go way back. Uh, it goes back to the uh, 1902 classic, A Trip to the Moon, which was directed by Georges Méliès, and uh, which featured a group of astronomers traveling to the moon and who come face to face with hostile moon men. Well, aliens have been at home on the silver screen ever since. But it wasn't until 1950 that flying saucers landed in Hollywood. And this was in response to the then burgeoning flying saucer phenomenon, which had been making headlines since 1947. Now, critics of popular culture have since interpreted many of the science fiction films of the 50s and 60s as political allegory, as commentary on social and political issues of the day, such as communism, atomic power, teenagers. And many of these films were indeed laced with such allegory. However, the critics have continually overlooked the underlying inspiration for these movies, which, of course, was the flying saucer phenomenon itself. Now, the actor Billy Gray, who played the character of Bobby Benson in the original The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951, he was once asked how to account for the huge popularity of the science fiction genre during the 50s and 60s. And his answer was interesting. He said, it correlated with reports of UFOs. At the time, it was just rampant. Every other person had seen something mysterious in the sky. And I think that's what made science fiction popular at this time. So Silver Screen Sources is not a film studies book. But it has been my goal in writing it to fill a very significant gap in film studies literature and also in UFO literature by looking at Hollywood through the lens of ufology. There have been many thousands of UFO-themed productions released over the years, both on film and television. Most of these in cinema have been low-budget uh, affairs, and a lot of these films have actually gone straight to DVD, straight to video. I'm not so concerned with these products. I'm more concerned with theatrically released productions, uh, films with medium or big budgets, and which have actually made some deep cultural impact. I'm also looking at uh, TV to an extent as well, things like The X-Files, Dark Skies, Invaders, uh, products of this nature. Now, I've counted uh, at least 50 major theatrically released UFO movies since the year 2000. Uh, and it's been my observation that more and more of these films are tapping directly into ufological discourse, ufological debate, okay, ufological literature. And it's also the case that more and more of these films are using the found footage approach, uh, and they're using sophisticated viral marketing campaigns as well. And what this has done is it's served to blur the boundaries between UFO fact and fantasy. And it's this blurring of UFO fact and fantasy that actually compelled me to write the book in the first place. And specifically, a conversation I had with a friend of mine a few years ago. We were sitting having a cup of coffee, and she'd never really read a UFO book before. She wasn't an expert on the subject by any means. <clears throat> and I asked her, have you heard of Men in Black? And I was referring to the historical Men in Black phenomenon, which dates back to the late 1940s, and which was actually documented in, well, was actually investigated by the US FBI at one point. So this is something that's sprung from our lived historical reality. Well, she replied immediately. She said, of course, everyone's seen Men in Black. <laughs> 
she had no concept of Men in Black as a, beyond a, a movie starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And this hit me hard. I thought, wow, this is, this is the power of cinema. And so the result, a few years later, is this. It's my book. And it's uh, an examination of the cultural and political interplay between Hollywood UFO movies and the UFO phenomenon itself from 1953 to present day. It's the culmination of around eight years of research, although I've been writing the book for about three years. Um, it features interviews with Hollywood writers, producers, and directors, and features a foreword by um, Dark Skies co-creator Bryce Sable, who's also the former chairman of the TV Academy of Arts and Sciences in America. So the book is due for release early next year through White Crow Books. Um, in addition to the, uh, the book, there's also a TV adaptation in the works uh, under development with Bryce Sable and Ben Hansen as executive producers called S3, which is a, a, a kind of a, a TV documentary adaptation of Silver Screen Sources, essentially. Um, now, my core research questions, and these are really questions I would encourage anyone to ask themselves when they engage with a, a UFO-themed product on the big or small screen, is does Hollywood fuel the UFO mythos or vice versa, okay? Do Hollywood UFO movies fictionalize the UFO phenomenon, actualize it, or both? In the event of some kind of a disclosure scenario, if such a thing is even possible, whatever it might look like, would we as cinema goers be able to separate UFO fact from fantasy? And indeed, should we? Because as we shall see, many UFO movies have been informed by factual UFO literature and debate. And this raises the question, how has so much fringe subcultural UFO law managed to find its way into Hollywood's populist narratives. Are we looking at Hollywood conspiracy here to acclimate us to some kind of a UFO reality, or is this more of a cultural process? So chapter one uh, looks at the role of cinema in our lives and its significance in, in relation to the UFO issue. It asks big questions, deals with big ideas, and provides the baseline for the book. Chapter two is concerned exclusively with the relationship between Hollywood and Washington. It asks this question, is there a Hollywood UFO conspiracy? And what do we even mean by that term? If there is a Hollywood UFO conspiracy, who might be involved and to what end? So basically, this chapter brings, to, brings together six decades worth of um, compelling cases, really, in which the US government and military have sought to monitor or influence the content of UFO-themed UFO productions. The rest of the book is really concerned with history and representation, so it's cultural more than conspiratorial. It looks at how Hollywood depicts and distorts UFO history, and it basically tells the story of UFOs through Hollywood UFO movies. So the remaining chapters look at aliens and UFOs in the following context. Invasion, so both covert and overt, so films such as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, uh, War of the Worlds. It also looks at um, benevolent visitation, benign contact, so films such as um, E.T., Starman, Cocoon, etc. Another chapter on abduction, another chapter on ancient astronauts, another chapter on the idea of a cover-up as depicted by Hollywood as well. This is all how Hollywood engages with these ufological facets. So as I say, today's talk is really broadly about the power of cinema in relation to the UFO issue. And as I say, I'm really concerned with how it is that UFOs have come to occupy this realm between fantasy and reality and the popular consciousness. How have we got to this stage? Well, I'm going to be talking about this through the framework of hyperreality. What is hyperreality? A popular definition has it as an inability of consciousness to distinguish reality from a simulation of reality, especially in technologically advanced postmodern societies. 
hyperreality is seen as a condition in which what is real and what is fiction are seamlessly blended together so that there is no clear distinction between where one ends and the other begins. So something that's hyperreal then is simultaneously real and unreal, fact and fantasy. Cinema has a strange power to actualize on some level whatever it depicts. And this was noted by the philosopher Walter Benjamin, who said that cinema has a unique faculty to express by natural means and with incomparable persuasiveness all that is fairy-like, marvelous, and supernatural. And we might add alien. The uh, artist Valley Export has also suggested that films are expansions of our structures of time and space, of our experiential structures. They are expansions of our reality and independent consciousness. Through cinema, the past is made visible. Space and time can be transported. The boundaries between artificial and natural reality, between actual and possible reality, between man and object, are transcended. The social theorist Guy Debord spoke of this spectacular society and suggested that we live in a spectacular society in which the real world has changed into simple images and the simple images have become real. The image in the spectacular society matters more than the object. It matters much more than any mere objective truth. In the spectacular society in which we live, the image replaces the truth. It is the truth. It is reality. The French philosopher Jean Baudrillard, speaking of hyperreality, noted that simulations of reality threaten to dissolve the boundaries between fact and fantasy, between true and false, between real and imaginary. And it's my suggestion that cinematic simulations of ufological history, UFO movies, have actually consumed the UFO history itself. They've replicated it, they've replaced it. It also occurs to me that Hollywood has become our main frame of reference for any popular, serious debate about the idea of life in the universe. It seems impossible for us to think for any amount of time about the idea of life in the universe from a scientific perspective, without our thoughts being invaded by iconographic imagery from classic alien movies. And this is a good example. So here we have the British Daily Telegraph reporting on the Vatican's uh, debates about life in the universe, a serious story anchored by a science fiction image from the movie Alien from 1979. More here from the UK Guardian reporting on the US Congress debating the idea of life in the universe, anchored by an image from Steven Spielberg's imagination. More again here, the idea of Christianity being impacted by the discovery of ET life, serious story anchored by Star Trek and the Passion of the Christ, and again the idea of life on Mars anchored by um, Mars attacks. Now when we live in a society in which the media are reliant upon fictional imagery to anchor factual stories, then you know that you are firmly into the realm of the hyperreal. We do live in a hyperreal world. I want to talk a little bit more about the power of cinema more broadly here. Cinema has an essential mystical ability to completely detach us from our physical environment and transport us to another more vivid realm of perception. It's a realm where everything is at once illusory and yet strangely real. In film studies, anything that exists within the world of the film is known as digesis. The cinema screen separates their fictional world from our real world, but actually the digesis seeps through the screen into our world, into our subconscious, and it becomes part of our reality. You know, key to cinema's power is that movies, in their slick, neatly packaged, self-contained way, they serve to narrativize and contextualize the events and debates and processes that constitute our frustratingly non-narrative world. Life rarely makes sense, but movies usually do, and I think we take comfort in that. 
And therein lies the problem, as I see it, because movies, no matter how realistic they are in the events they depict, are not real life, of course. They are at best reflections of our reality, snapshots of it, simulations of it, skewed and distorted through the ideological framework of those who've made them. Movies are problematic in that they masquerade as the final word on a given topic. No matter, no matter what the subject, and regardless of how much that subject has already been written about and debated, once it's committed to film, once it's received the full Hollywood treatment, it, it's embedded firmly in the popular consciousness. It's imprinted on our psyche. And this is the power of movies. The, um, the director Martin Scorsese has suggested that the appeal of cinema stems from our subconscious desire to share a common memory. I'm particularly interested in how easily we're able to separate our cinematic memories from our everyday reality. And this seems like a crucial question when it comes to UFOs. Now, when it comes to UFOs, it is important to state that UFOs, unidentified flying objects, are real, which is to say that they exist independently of cinema and of pop culture more broadly. UFOs have been investigated by governments around the world for more than six decades. What the phenomenon represents is open for debate, and various theories have been propounded from secret military aircraft and natural phenomena, otherworldly intelligences. The point is that even in a world without movies, without cinema, people would continue to report UFOs. Now, people were reporting UFOs and flying saucers specifically long before Hollywood got in on the act. What I'm saying is that the UFO subculture, so to speak, informs Hollywood more than Hollywood informs the UFO subculture. And by that, I mean that Hollywood engages with UFO law in a parasitic fashion. It grabs hold of fringe ideas and it popularizes them through the science fiction genre. Men in Black, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, of the Fourth Kind, Area 51. Hollywood didn't create these terms. They were all part of the common language of ufology decades before Hollywood lifted them. Now, this perspective contrasts with a popular assumption that the UFO subculture feeds on and thrives as a result of images projected by the entertainment industry. This is not quite the case. But what Hollywood does do is it encourages a widespread acceptance, not only of the idea that we're not alone in the universe, but also of alien visitation. And Hollywood most certainly has made UFOs synonymous with extraterrestrials. And this is kind of interesting because even within the UFO community, there are varying theories to account for UFO origins some of which are more mundane than the ET hypothesis, others more exotic. But in Hollywood, it's all about the aliens. Now, in the case of UFOs and Hollywood, um, art, broadly speaking, imitates life. If the opposite were true, then following the release of James Cameron's Avatar in 2009, which is the highest grossing film of all time, we might have expected thousands of people to have begun reporting 10-foot-tall blue aliens. Right? This didn't happen. Just as Hollywood's forceful projection of this little green men meme over the years has failed to result in mass sightings of little green men, although some have been reported. Um, so when it comes to, Hollywood, to, to, to UFOs, Hollywood produces depictions of what people actually report. This isn't to say that what's reported is always true or accurate, but merely that Hollywood sees dramatic potential in those reports. So Hollywood then has been feeding off ufology since the 1950s. And here's a good example from 1956. This is the movie Earth versus the Flying Saucers. A, a schlocky sci-fi B-movie. But it was actually based on a non-fiction book from 1953 called Flying Saucers from Outer Space, written by the famous Donald Kehoe, very serious researcher at the time, trying to expose the cover-up. He was kind of the Steve Bassett of his day. Steve Bassett would be honored to hear that. Um, so Kehoe's book was this very serious examination of the, uh, the UFO issue, and it drew extensively from Air Force files on the subject. What happened was, in the 
early 50s, a group of producers approached Kehoe seeking the rights to his book. Uh, they said that they were going to make it into a serious documentary. Kehoe was, was skeptical uh, and resisted, but ultimately the producers got their way. They got the rights to the book, and they made Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which of course was not a serious examination of the UFO issue. Kehoe was outraged and sought to have his name removed from the credits to no avail. But it's interesting because, so the result is a, as I say, it's a schlocky sci-fi B-movie, but it's one that retained a huge amount of factual ufological detail from Kehoe's source material. So it effectively served to blur the boundaries between fact and fantasy, ufologically. Um, the movie's flying saucers, for example, were uh, classic saucer shape with the dome, but they had a rotating outer rim with slotted veins around the edge. This description was something that was taken directly from Kehoe's book. Kehoe had collated these descriptions from witnesses over the years, and other investigators had collated the same descriptions. Um, so the, the appearance of the sources was, was largely accurate. The sounds also that the sources makes that the sources make in the movie is very accurate to witness reports um, from the 40s through to through to present. In fact, uh, it's a very high pitched, whining, whirring, whistling sound which has been commonly reported with UFO close encounters, and this is the sound that the sources make in the film. Uh, there's actually a very specific reference to ufology in a scene in which Foo Fighters make an appearance. Um, so there's a sequence in the film where the characters are stood in someone's garden and they're discussing Project Skyhook, which is a classified um, satellite program run by the US Air Force. All of a sudden, two glowing balls of light appear over the, over the garden, these orbs of light just hovering there, seem to be monitoring what they're doing. And the Air Force general in the scene, he, he remarks, look, what are those lights? And his daughter, Carol, who's a scientist on the project, she replies nonchalantly, oh, they're what the pilots call foo lights. There have been so many around the project these last couple of days that we all just take them for granted. Now, anyone familiar with ufology will recognize that foo fighters, again, spring from the pages of UFO literature. These were a phenomena reported by military personnel especially during the early, early to mid-1940s, beginning about 1941, 1942. And typically, they took the form of um, orbs, um, glowing spheres, or sometimes just dull spheres. Sometimes saucer-like craft were also reported, but they weren't referred to as flying saucers because the flying saucer term wasn't coined until 1947. So this was kind of like a precursor to the modern UFO phenomenon, these Foo Fighters. So this was something that was taken directly from Kehoe's book, factual information inserted into a science fiction movie. Skip forward um, two decades, approximately, to the 1977 classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind, directed by Steven Spielberg. This marked the first on-screen appearance of the archetypal alien gray, as we've come to kind of conceptualize it today. Now, shades of the gray had appeared on screen dating back to the 1950s. You'd had beings with large heads, but big eyes, or with small eyes, rather. And you'd had beings that were small. But you'd, you'd never really had um, one film that crystallized all of these elements and brought them together to form the archetypal alien gray. And this was the first film that really did that. Now, skeptics have suggested that it was this film, the huge cultural impact of this film, that pushed this image into pop culture and led people to report these beings. Uh, but actually, it doesn't necessarily hold much weight because I interviewed the production designer on the movie, a guy called Joe Alves, uh, and I thank Soren uh, Hilgard here for connecting me with, uh, with Joe. And uh, 
so I spoke to Joe on the phone and I asked him, because he's the guy who designed the aliens, of course, and I said, how did you design these aliens? Where did you get your inspiration from? And he replied that he called a lot of people when trying to design the aliens to see if people had actually seen anything. And he said that he talked to a lot of legitimate people who described very simplistic creatures with large eyes and small, no and small mouths uh, with no nose. So the, the classic alien grain. So he was doing his research in the mid-1970s. This is before this image became part of popular culture uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. So he was drawing his inspiration from grassroots reports, essentially. He wasn't pulling out of thin air. So he presented this image to Steven Spielberg. Spielberg liked it a lot. He liked the childlike quality of the beings, said, that's what I want, and that's what he got, and that's what audiences got. Beyond the appearance of the aliens, uh, Close Encounters is rich in ufological detail. It features UFOs performing silent and spectacular UFO maneuvers, as per UFO witness reports, UFOs interfering with electrical grids, car engines, government secrecy and disinformation surrounding UFOs, and it also received advice from uh, Professor JLN Hynek, who was the uh, former scientific advisor to Project Blue Book for the US Air Force. He, he even has a cameo in the movie uh, at, towards the end. Even the title of the film, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, of course, is indebted to Hynek's classification system for UFO sightings. So this is, a, this is very much a film that's indebted to UFO research, to UFO literature and debate. This is uh, Hynek here with uh, uh, his protege, uh, Jacques Vallée, uh, who is all, who's also now a, a very famous, uh, albeit reclusive, UFO researcher. And uh, it was Jacques Vallée, in fact, who inspired the character of uh, Claude Lacombe in the movie, who's played by Francois Truffaut, the Frenchman in the movie. Vallée provided the inspiration for that character. This here is, um, this hangs on my wall in my office. It's original marketing material for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And this was, I don't know if you can read the bottom here, it says, this special report has been provided as a public service by the producers of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's presenting factual ufological information. It's talking about what UFOs are, the phenomenon on a global scale, the shapes and sizes of UFOs, when people see them, how many people have seen them, what a close encounter of the first, second, and third kind is. So it's providing information, data, to, to the general public, but it's doing so in the, efforts, in, in, in the effort to, to promote a fictional movie. Okay, so yes, Close Encounters contains a great deal of factual, factual information, or should we say it's, it's, it's drawn a great deal from factual information. But ultimately what you've got is a fantasy. So you've got the perfect blending here again of fact and fantasy. I want to talk a little bit here about Roswell and Area 51. This might actually lead nicely into George's talk, I think, because George is going to be talking about Area 51 a little later as well. Um, because these are exemplars of ufological hyperreality. Why? Because everyone knows about Roswell and Area 51. It doesn't matter if you've never read a book on UFOs. You've heard of Roswell and you've heard of Area 51. You might not know what they represent specifically. You might not know the fine details. You probably don't. But you've heard of them, and they conjure certain imagery. And that imagery has been conjured through Hollywood almost exclusively. And this is a good example. This is the 1994 movie Roswell. Uh, produced and uh, written by a guy called Paul Davids. Uh, so this is the perfect example of the power of cinema in relation to the UFO issue, because this is the film that thrust Roswell as an as a incident into the popular consciousness. It thrust it into popular conversation. Uh, the writer and director, as I say, Paul Davids, he was compelled to make this film as much for educational purposes as for entertainment. And that's because he himself was a UFO witness. 
During the late 1980s, Paul and his daughter witnessed a classic flying saucer from their window of their house. And uh, they watched this object for a few minutes. And it left a huge, huge impact on, uh, on his life. Uh, he immersed himself in the UFO literature as a result. And eventually, he came across a then little known case involving the alleged crash of a flying saucer in the, in the deserts near Roswell, New Mexico. No one seemed to be looking into this apart from a couple of guys, one of whom was Don Schmidt. Uh, he was connected with Don and found out that Don Schmidt was writing a book on the subject. Paul Davids uh, basically bought the rights to the book. And then the result a few years later was the movie Roswell. This is Paul here with the uh, maquette. Uh, model from the 1994 movie in his office. So this is a, a really good example of the process of ufological hyperreality as applied to one movie. A man, Paul Davids, sees a UFO, has a real experience. This sighting leads him to make a movie about a little-known case. Okay? This film is then viewed by millions of people around the world for whom this incident, previously unknown essentially, becomes simultaneously actualized and, factu uh, and fictionalized it becomes hyper-real. Okay? And so the idea of, of, of whether Roswell did or didn't happen is kind of a, it's, it's a moot point, you know, because Roswell definitely did happen because we saw it in a movie. But it definitely didn't happen because we saw it in a movie. And this is the power of cinema. This is the effect of cinema, simultaneously to fictionalize and actualize whatever it depicts, to push things into this hyper-real realm. Two years later, you had the mega blockbuster Independence Day push Roswell and Area 51 further and further into the popular consciousness uh, because Roswell featured both of these things as central to its plot. Um, this was actually the film that put Roswell, that, that put Area 51 rather on the map. Uh, Area 51 had been mentioned in products prior to this. It had been mentioned in Paul Davis' 1994 Roswell movie briefly, and it had been mentioned in The X-Files. And of course, there'd been news reports on it, and George can tell you all about that. Um, but in terms of entertainment media, this was the product that put Area 51 way out there. Everyone now had some concept of what Area 51 was, albeit a very distorted concept of what it, of what it is. Um, now, of course, Area 51 is a, a real base. Uh, and we probably only know it as such, really, or, or the average person who doesn't read uh, UFO literature only knows it as such through Hollywood. The Department of Defense, the US Pentagon, actually tried to have all references to Area 51 removed from Independence Day, because the producers had originally sought the cooperation of the Department of Defense on this movie. And the Department of Defense said that they would be happy to cooperate and lend their equipment and advice in exchange for a few changes to the script. Uh, a lot of these changes related to just basic stuff to do with errors on the part of um, military depictions. But also they wanted all references to Area 51 and Roswell removed from the script. They described these things as, quote, major stumbling blocks for their cooperation. And the producers were a bit horrified at this. They thought, we can't remove Area 51 and Roswell from our script because they are central to the plot. So eventually, the filmmakers decided to go out on their own. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. And the DOD had no input in the film, which they would later regret because they missed out on a huge opportunity to basically propagandize, <laughs> propagandize about what they do. Um, so yeah, the movie was made without DOD cooperation. And it went on to gross in excess of $800 million worldwide still one of the most successful films of all time. And Area 51 and Roswell were now part of pop culture. So much so, in fact, that in the following decade, 
Area 51, at least, had become a cliché. Um, this is the 2003 movie Looney Tunes Back in Action, directed by Joe Dante, who did Gremlins and, and The Burbs and uh, movies like that. Uh, there's a sequence in the film where Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, this is a family film, like a kid's film, essentially, um, got a major, major uh, cinema release, though. And you have Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck walking through the Nevada desert, and they stumble across a top-secret military facility, wherein they see live creatures sealed in glass jars. And these creatures are iconic monsters from science fiction films. So you've got Robot Monster, the man from Planet X, the Daleks, the mutant from this island Earth, and you've got Marvin the Martian there as well, all in these kind of glass, glass jars. Uh, the odd one out, alongside all of these, is this classic archetypal alien gray strewn out on a med medical table being operated on by scientists. So this fact-based ufological rendering is essentially fictionalized through its association with the schlock creatures that precede it. Uh, while in the facility, Bugs asks one of the scientists, he says, so this is Area 51, right? The secret military base where they keep the aliens? Bear in mind, just you know, a decade earlier, no one had even heard of Area 51. And now it's just, you can make casual reference to it in a movie and everyone will have, everyone will have an idea what you're talking about. The scientist says, no, no, Area 51 is actually a paranoid fantasy we concocted to hide the true identity of this facility. And we then see a sign which reads, Area 52, keeping things from the American people since 1947. <laughs> now, Joe Dante, the director, added this little flourish as a piece of comedy. He, he was unaware of the fact that Area 52 actually exists. <laughs> Area 52 is uh, located um, <laughs> about 70 miles northwest of Area 51, and it's the Tonopah Test Range de designated by the Department of Energy as Area 52. And I told this to Joe Dante, and he was like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I just added it because I thought Area 51 had become so cliched that we have to call it Area 52. That's the power of cinema again. So this is Joe Dante here. And I also told him, I said, I, I remarked to him that um, the Department of Defense had sought to remove references to uh, Area 51 from the script to in, for, to, for Independence Day. And he thought that was absurd. He said, well, look, look, the cat's out of the bag, I'm afraid. I mean, it's a little late for the Pentagon to be worrying about that. This thing, Area 51, has entered folklore. And it absolutely has. And ironically, it's entered folklore in large part due to movies made by people like Joe Dante. They don't understand the power of the medium that they, that they wield. Um, so we can actually view Area 51, although it's a real place, as a hyper-real construct. The cultural theorist John Story has said that in the realm of the hyper-real, the distinction between simulation and the real implodes. And the real and the imaginary continually collapse into each other. And the result is that reality and simulation are experienced as without difference. And indeed, that the simulations can often be experienced as more real than the real itself. Certainly, I would say that cinematic simulations of Area 51 are more real than the place itself to most people. The place itself is so far removed from prying eyes, so, so remote in its desert locale, that it may as well not exist. And it, indeed, it doesn't exist for, for almost all of us, apart from on the screen. The late, great British filmmaker Ken Russell once said that Hollywood fills the gaps in our knowledge of the world. This is a profound statement. It's true, and it's especially true of our knowledge of Area 51. I want to talk briefly about uh, viral marketing campaigns and the found footage approach. What we have here is an actual photograph of an unidentified flying object um, from 1942. 
uh, stemming from the historical event known as the Battle of Los Angeles, in which a number of unidentified flying objects penetrated airspace over Los Angeles in the early hours of, uh, of uh, the, the 25th of uh, February. And they were greeted with a barrage of, of uh, artillery from the US military. And the incident actually resulted in the death of six civilians. This is a real, uh, a real UFO case, thoroughly documented. Uh, the object seemed to be impervious to the artillery fire, moved away slowly, never seen again, never officially identified. Um, looks like some kind of a classic flying saucer. The, uh, the little uh, blobs around it are exploding artillery. And these are search beams from the ground cast up onto the object itself, and this is the object. So real historical event, whatever it might represent. This is a poster, the official poster, for the 2011 science fiction movie Battle Los Angeles. It's the actual photograph taken from the historical event used in a purely fictional context. So has anyone seen Battle Los Angeles? Yeah. yeah. Most of you are lucky then, if you've not seen it. It's very, very bad. Um, and it was fully supported by the US military, so that makes sense. And um, uh, basically, it makes no reference whatsoever, spoken or otherwise, to the actual historical event of the Battle of Los Angeles. You've got the filmmakers thinking it would be cool in our viral campaign to tap into belief in UFOs, and so we're going to use you know, UFO pictures, and we're going to tap into the existing mythology on the subject, but we're just going to spin it however we want it. So there's actually no reference in the film to, to the historical event, um, and this, this picture doesn't appear in the film itself. It was just used entirely for the, the viral campaign. Uh, the other posters for the film featured different UFOs, all of which were created in a computer. This is the only one that was real. So anyone who's unfamiliar with the historical event of the Battle of Los Angeles who sees this poster automatically assumes that it's a fictional image. You know, this is something that's been conjured in a, in a Hollywood uh, effects studio. So again, perfect blurring of, of fact and fantasy here. Anyone seen this film, The Fourth Kind? Yeah. Um, how many people thought this was real? OK, we've got a few truthful people. Um, yeah, so this is a film that employed the found footage approach. This approach was popularized by the um, Blair Witch Project in, the, in 1999. People have been tampering with it uh, prior to that, but Blair Witch was the first film that really took the shaky cam approach and uh, presented footage as being real to audiences. Um, so this, this followed in, in, in those footsteps, and it presented mass abductions in the town of Nome, Alaska, uh, as being real. It presented it as being found footage of these events, and then as a docudrama presenting reconstructions of those events. This is the first sequence of the film in which uh, Mila Jovovich looks directly into the camera and says, I'm Dr. Abigail Tyler. Every scene in this movie, is, uh, it's, excuse me, I'm, uh, I'll be portraying uh, Dr. Abigail Tyler, and every scene in this movie is supported by archive footage. So they're, you know, they're being kind of brazen um, here. They don't seem to have any concern for the fact that audiences might be duped. Indeed, they want people to be duped, although this landed them in hot water, as we'll see. Um, so this is, this, is the, this is the format of the movie. You've got the real event on the left and the reconstruction on the right. So you've got hypnotic regressions with people who are claiming to be abducted, and then the dramatic reconstruction on the right. 
So it's, again, it's presenting everything as being absolutely real. Well, of course, the real footage throughout the movie was fabricated in its entirety. And what the film also did in its viral marketing campaign was it planted stories, news stories, seemingly factual news stories um, on the internet as being part of uh, the Alaskan press club. And these looked like historical news reports of mass abductions in, in Nome, Alaska. So they were laying the groundwork. They were creating a, a, fantasy, a fantasy, a myth. Uh, but people were interpreting it as real. People were saying, oh my god, there's lots of stuff going on in Nome. People were being, being abducted. Well, when it came down to it, it turned out that Dr. Abigail Tyler never existed. Neither did anyone else portrayed in the film. And all of the news reports were fabricated in their entirety. And this led the Alaska Press Club to sue Universal for $20,000 uh, for undermining the credibility of the various papers. Now, again, I've, I've met a, su a surprising amount of people who have been convinced that this film was real, even after the fact, even, <laughs> even when you demonstrate that it was clearly not, they're convinced it was real. And the reason for that is because, although it's essentially a horror film, it does draw, um, in certain ways, fairly convincingly from established uh, abduction law. So they've read the literature, you know, they, they've read the debates about this, they're familiar with the iconography uh, and with the procedures of, of abductions, although they go way, way beyond with it and make it completely outrageous. But uh, yeah, what you have here is something that draws again from existing ufological discourse. This movie, has anyone seen this one? Not too many people, it's quite, it, it had, uh, it was a major cinema release, it was a Disney film. Uh, quite a big budget film, made its money back, not a huge success. Uh, Race to Witch Mountain, which is a remake of the 1975 Disney movie uh, Escape to Witch Mountain. This is a film I've spoken about in the past, but I've spoken about it in the past in the context of the CIA, which were actually covertly involved in the production. Um, I won't be speaking about that today, but you can read my work on it online. It's, um, it's easy to access. Um, Today, I'm going to be talking about the, the ufological content of the film. So it concerns itself with the adventures on Earth of two Nordic beings, essentially, uh, as reported in ufological literature, these kind of um, beautiful, uh, blue-eyed, blonde-haired beings uh, coming to Earth with, with a benevolent intent. And the film actually opens, the very first sequence of the film is a rapid montage playing out to dramatic music of actual UFO footage. So you're just bombarded with genuine UFO footage, or at least what's purported to be genuine UFO footage. They haven't created the footage. They've found it off the internet. They've got it from historical archives. Some of it's obviously real. Some of it's questionable. But a lot of it is, is essentially real. It's taken from the real world. So they bombard you with this imagery. Uh, and then we start seeing famous UFO photographs as well. We hear selected words from actual historical TV news reports. We hear Gulf Breeze, Phoenix, Area 51. Anyone who's familiar with the subject will know that these are um, kind of part of UFO, part of UFO law now. Um, we also see real footage of uh, Ronald Reagan addressing the United Nations in 1987, saying we're facing an alien threat from outside this world, which of course he famously said. Um, we also see President Clinton in 1995 talking about Roswell, saying, I want to know. Uh, we even see a TV news anchor quoting uh, Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who famously, uh, in his presidential campaign, revealed that uh, he'd uh, seen a UFO. And then it later came to light that he'd actually heard directions in his mind from this triangular UFO. This is on the news. 
And then we have governor, uh, former Governor Fife Symington saying UFOs are real as well. So this is all stuff which has been taken from uh, archival news sources and just thrust at the viewer in a fictional context. The bad guys in the movie are Project Moondust. Okay? Uh, they're men in black and they're a crash retrieval unit. Um, they go around the world retrieving crash flying saucers and you know, performing experiments, etc., etc., uh, tapping into the UFO conspiracy law. Now, again, anyone who's read the, their literature will know that Project Moondust was actually a real Air Force intelligence project, uh, which, along with its sister project, Blue Fly, uh, was employed on a quick reaction basis to recover or perform field exploitation of unidentified flying objects. This is an actual Air Force document officially released. Um, when they say unidentified flying objects, they don't mean they're not admitting extraterrestrial or otherwise, they're simply saying unidentified, unidentified flying objects. So there were historically projects uh, such as Blue Fly and Moondust which were tasked with recovery of UFOs. And this was, uh, this was something that, that the director, Andy Fickman, wanted to incorporate into the movie. Project Blue Boy, which is clearly a reference to the real Project uh, Blue Fly, was also central to the plot of the 2003 movie Dreamcatcher, which is based on the Stephen King novel. And this whole film is basically concerned with the activities of Project Blue Boy, uh, which is, a, as I say, a UFO crash retrieval unit. And the whole thing is heavily conspiratorial. Uh, this is director Andy Fickman, uh, the guy who made Race to Witch Mountain. And I interviewed him in 2010. And we were talking about UFOs. He was born and raised in Roswell, New Mexico. And he said to me, it's fun for me to talk to you because you're somebody who gets that when the character is carrying that Project Moondust folder, you can really appreciate that there's some historical truth to that, or at the very least that there's some historical reporting of it, whereas to a lot of people, it's just a prop. He told me that the script originally, as presented to him by Disney, had been more of a comedy, but he wanted the script to be serious. He wanted it to be a serious treatment of the UFO subject. He wanted to make use of events, debates, and terminology featured in the literature. And he said, look, I want to do this film, but I want to do it as seriously as I can. And to this end, he schooled his cast in UFO history. He said, I would spend time with my actors literally just going through UFO 101. We'd watch every DVD that was out there, every documentary. I would give them book upon book upon book. He was trying to educate his cast and in turn educate the public through this film. He told me, in UFO mythology, in terms of literature, in terms of research, there begins to become a language. People in the UFO movement would easily speak of Roswell and have very clear ideas about what that means, what an EBE means, extraterrestrial biological entity. All of this terminology we were kind of slipping in, even the wormhole theory of travel and how some, someone could visit us from so many light years away. That was all stuff that we were repositioning for our own mythology and storytelling, but all based on previous research. So this is the perfect example of hyperreality through cinema. So basically, Fickman said that he wanted to engage the UFO community. And actually, to that end, there's a sequence in the film where they're actually at a UFO con uh, uh, conference in Las Vegas. And Whitley Strieber appears in the movie, the famous abductee experiencer. Dr. Roger Lear appears in the movie, and a number of other famous UFO researchers as well, appearing as themselves. OK, so let me recap some of the points here. Hollywood draws from fact-based discourse on UFOs. Okay? This is a phenomenon which is already rejected by consensus reality. Now, the presentation of this UFO discourse on screen within the context of that most fantastical of genres, science fiction, but it doesn't matter what the genre, because cinema serves to fictionalize and actualize regardless of the genre. The presentation of this UFO 
mythology on screen serves to blur the boundaries between fact and fantasy. These cinematic simulations of ufological history, UFO movies, simultaneously actualize and fictionalize the UFO phenomenon. They, un they, they fictionalize the underlying subject matter, that is. It becomes hyper-real. Now we can break this down even further because we can talk about this in three phases. These are the three phases of ufological hyperreality as I, as I perceive them. Uh, and this is my attempt to explain how it is that UFOs have come to occupy this realm between fantasy and reality. So phase one is simulation, in which a film or TV show is produced that reflects a basic ufological reality. Phase two is reception in which the basic ufological reality is screened as spectacle for mass consumption and in the process is masked and perverted through the cultural value of the medium, in this case film or TV, but we could extend this to video games, comic books, etc. And then phase three is hyperreality, in which reality and simulation are experienced as without difference, or rather the image has come to mean more to us than any underlying reality. So essentially, this hyperreal state has arisen through processes of mass media simulation. And the blurring of true and false, real and imaginary within the context of sci-fi engenders our acceptance of the UFO as just that, as a fictional cinematic construct with little or no grounding in our lived historical reality. But at the same time, thanks to their permanent residency in the popular imagination, UFOs are no less real to us as a result. So it boils down to this. In our hyperreal world, a world where Roswell is better understood as a plot device, and Area 51 is a tourist attraction, a ufological Disneyland. This, this right here, and everything it represents is disclosure. Think about it, because how, how does one disclose what is already hyperreal? The hyperreality of the UFO phenomenon in our culture nullifies its potential to be either real or unreal, because it is now, and perhaps always will be, both. Now, this hyperreality model does not solve the UFO enigma because it doesn't tell us what UFOs are at an ontological level. But it does, I believe, go a very long way towards explaining why it is that UFOs uh, continue to defy acceptance within our consensus reality. Now, I'm going to just shift focus for the last 10 minutes and share with you my own personal perspective on this phenomenon. And also on the field that seeks to understand it, really, and the problems inherent with popular approaches to, to this phenomenon. And I'm going to read uh, briefly here from a paper that I've prepared, so I thank you for indulging me. It won't go on long. <clears throat> Ufologists speak a great deal about the truth. The truth is out there, they tell people, and it must doggedly be pursued for the benefit of all mankind. But rarely, are ufologists truthful with themselves? First off, there's no such thing as a ufologist. There's no such thing as a ufologist because there's no such thing as ufology, at least not in any meaningful sense of the word. If ology refers to a branch of knowledge or learning sprung from organized research, which it does, then ufology is a broken twig. The UFO subject has produced thousands of dedicated researchers over the years, none of them ufologists, and thousands more books but few have made any significant contribution to our understanding of the UFO enigma. What, in all honesty, can we say we know conclusively today about the underlying nature and purpose of the UFO phenomenon that we didn't already know in the 1950s? 
The answer is very little, if anything. All we have are more testimonies and mountains of case files stuffed with much the same reports as were being filed 70 years ago. While many UFO researchers undoubtedly would consider their vocation or hobby a selfless one, I regard my own obsession with the subject, and it's fair to say that I am, or rather I was, obsessed, to be hugely self-indulgent. I've dedicated the past several years of my life to the study of UFOs and specifically to Hollywood's depictions of the phenomenon, but to what justifiable end I can't say. I find the world around me to be enchanting, but also deeply troubling and alienating. UFOs offer me an escape into the unknown and unknowable, and this appeals to me beyond my means to express. I want so much to be part of something greater than myself, to expand my experiential boundaries through otherworldly knowledge, that I've willfully removed myself from the world I would see changed and blinded myself to the truth I've sought all along, which is ironic. I want to back up a little. By saying that ufology is non-existent, I'm not suggesting that UFOs can't be the subject of serious study. Some researchers can indeed speak with authority on certain aspects of UFOs. Their official history is recorded in declassified government documentation, their media representation over time, and even the essential physical and behavioral characteristics of UFOs and their alleged occupants. However, when it comes to understanding the underlying nature of this multifaceted phenomenon, its origins and its purposes, we are, all of us, clueless, awash in a sea of speculation and petty ideological feuds. We in the UFO community consider our cluelessness, if we consider it at all, as a point of departure in a bold Fox Mulder-like quest for the truth, but in reality, we fear it may be perpetual. Meanwhile, those in the corridors of power with secret access to UFO information fear that they too are clueless, despite having spent perhaps billions of dollars over seven decades to find a satisfying answer to the UFO question. Their fear in this regard is justified, for clearly, in the grand scheme of things, they are as clueless as the rest of us. Even having hands-on access to craft and bodies will not come close to bringing ufological enlightenment to the primitive 21st century inquirer. Our obsession with UFO truth speaks to our insatiable yearning to grasp the essential meaning of our universe and to fathom our purpose within it and beyond it even. Surely, higher external intelligences can provide us with the answers we seek, and in so doing, make us whole, make us one. UFO disclosure, the official acknowledgement that we are not alone in the universe, will, we insist to all those who will listen, but mostly to ourselves, open the floodgates for cosmic understanding. The inherent implication of this notion is that, absent a disclosure event, humanity will remain forever in the shadow of its own ignorance and at the mercy of its basest instincts. Only UFO disclosure can save us or at least disclosure is the closest solution to hand to save us from the sinking ship of human civilization. This is delusional. The uh, there are other, more useful sources of knowledge and wisdom available to us than UFOs, other paths towards enlightenment. You may have noticed that I've made frequent use of the word belief today. That's because when it comes to UFOs, we are all of us believers. In the absence of a definitive answer to the UFO riddle, we all believe something or, or something or other about what the phenomenon might represent. We project our pre-existing beliefs onto the UFO mystery, molding the phenomenon to our individual paradigms and ultimately to our collective paradigm. It is my belief, based on the preponderance of evidence, that we are indeed interacting with what we might loosely term non-human intelligences. But I also recognize that the UFO phenomenon serves as an externalization of our hopes and fears about our own species and about ourselves as individuals. The ancient Chinese text, the Tao Te Ching, advocates that we should seek not to know, but to unknow, to empty our vessels of rigid certainties, and in so doing, find enlightenment in a state of unknowing. I've come to recognize that I will never come close to truly understanding the UFO mystery, and that truth is not to be found inside a flying saucer, but rather within a more earthly vessel.
We in the UFO community have constructed many roads to UFO truth over the decades. But if only we could see that they all lead back to the same place, to the greatest mystery of all, to consciousness itself. If there is an ultimate truth to be found, it most assuredly is not out there. When it comes to the big picture concerning UFOs, if only we allow ourselves to know that we know nothing, the universe may yet reveal itself to us. Now, I expressed these ideas first uh, online a few months ago in an article I posted on my blog called Letting Go of UFOs. A handful of individuals responded positively to my words, but overwhelmingly, readers accused me of being defeatist in my attitude. Defeatist. The implication being that we're in some kind of war. And certainly that's how a great many people in the UFO community see the pursuit of UFO truth as a battle, us versus them. This way of thinking is not at all productive, as proven by 70 years of official silence on the UFO issue. They've not budged, and they will not budge, because they cannot. And by the way, they are us, and we are they. The only battle worth fighting here is with ourselves as individuals and as a species. We must fight to overcome our preconceived notions of this phenomenon, notions which to a very significant extent have been shaped and reinforced by entertainment media. We should seek to confront our deeply held beliefs about the phenomenon, seek to unknow, so that truth might reveal itself to us of its own accord and on a profoundly personal level. The problem with the disclosure mindset is that it's already declared an end to the UFO enigma. It says, in essence, we know what they are, extraterrestrial spacecraft, end of story. And then the disclosure movement looks to officialdom, a sort of unfair parent figure, and it tugs incessantly at the leg of power, saying, Dad, tell us. And Dad's like, not now, go and play with your friends. Well, you know what? Dad doesn't have the answers. Sure, he may have a few more pieces of information at his disposal than do we, but he's ashamed to tell you that he doesn't really understand what's going on either. Because despite appearances and the power of his ego, in a universe that's 13 billion years old, he's just a monkey like the rest of us, flailing around for answers in the early years of the 21st century on a planet whose dominant trend is war. So no, dad doesn't understand what he's dealing with, and he can't even comprehend it. And it doesn't help that the phenomenon he's dealing with goes far beyond the physical, beyond the merely extraterrestrial. He's dealing with a coalescence of impossible phenomena. He's dealing with consciousness itself. And so what can daddy possibly tell the kids without appearing ignorant and confused, without losing a huge weight of his authority as a parent, as a leader? It's better to stay silent and let the kids believe that he has all the answers, that he's all knowing. It's for this reason that should officialdom ever come clean on the UFO issue, we should all be immediately and extremely suspicious because UFO truth by way of official power structures will not be truth at all. We know this. It will, by necessity, be whatever truth least vilifies and incriminates the secret keepers, whose primary concern is not to bring about world peace through the disclosure of cosmic secrets, but rather to avoid at all costs being lynched by angry mobs for having withheld from the public incomprehensible data concerning the nature of our reality, and to maintain our, our, our existing global system, a system in which the activities of the privileged few are concealed from the distracted masses. This is the system we vote for year after year, decade after decade, the illusion of democracy. And if and when the day comes that the layers of our reality are peeled back and humanity collectively finds itself in a new world, it will not be for one signature too many on a disclosure petition. If we must insist on using the term, disclosure is a slow process of personal awakening on a mass scale. When I say personal awakening, I most certainly do not mean the simple acceptance that we are not alone in the universe. I mean a continuing process of inner exploration. The ultimate irony of the disclosure movement is that it deeply distrusts officialdom while simultaneously looking to officialdom for the truth. 
And by imagining all answers to the UFO mystery to be out of public reach, deep in the bowels of the national security state, the disclosure movement actually places power into the hands of officialdom while disempowering the individual. I certainly don't have a fast track to UFO truth. I don't believe there is a fast track to UFO truth. All too often on the UFO scene, audiences are content to hear what they want to hear, to have their existing beliefs confirmed by self-proclaimed experts who know full well that their personality cult is guaranteed by telling the crowds, and dare I say followers, only what they want to hear, that disclosure is just around the corner and that a brighter tomorrow will follow that day. But the kind of revolutionary change we hope will be triggered by UFO, UFO disclosure can only ever occur from a bottom-up level and over a considerable expanse of time. Enlightenment is earned slowly by the individual. It is not handed to him by officialdom on a saucer-shaped platter. But then it's easier to demand of a faceless bureaucracy than it is to demand of ourselves. I should clarify that I don't take issue with the disclosure movement in itself. The efforts of people like Steve Bassett and others have undoubtedly brought UFOs to the attention of many thousands of people around the world who previously were indifferent to the issue, and this is to be applauded. What does concern me, however, is that disclosure has become the focus of the UFO community. It's a luring offer of a fast track to UFO truth, marginalizing more esoteric approaches to the phenomena. In short, in the age of disclosure and exopolitics, the pursuit of UFO truth is political rather than mystical. If the day ever comes when humanity can claim an understanding of the UFO phenomenon, I'm very confident that politics will have played almost no part in this enlightenment. We should see UFOs then not as a call to pressure governments to unlock their files. Officialdom has nothing left to offer us on UFOs, nothing we can believe or accept. And free energy technologies, if they exist, will not save our world because they will not miraculously change human nature. So let's take officialdom out of the equation altogether. Let's shift the focus onto ourselves and onto our own relationship with this phenomenon. Let's see UFOs as a call to look within, with the aim of unlocking our true mystical nature and our latent psychic and spiritual potential. Because in so doing, we might actually begin to understand all forms of extraordinary and impossible phenomena. Perhaps all that's required on our part is a recognition, or rather a profound acceptance, that the distinction between an individual and the invisible beyond that surrounds her is entirely illusory. I mean, no doubt that some of what I've said here today will not sit, sit well with many in the UFO community, perhaps with many here in this room. But for what little it may be worth, I wanted to share with you honestly my own shifting perspective on this phenomenon and on the field that seeks to understand it. I thank you. What an amazing lecture. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. And with that being said, we'll let you guys go. I want to thank the Ghoulies again for Hot Rods from Outer Space. I want to thank you guys for listening. Again, I want to thank Cliff Harris and everybody else who listens to this podcast. You're all important. And I want to thank you. With that being said, keep kicking it.